You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. There we go. Well, I appreciate you coming. I, I kind of wish I was in the, the nave listening to this bishop. That sounds so fascinating. Um, I had an opportunity to spend a lunch with Archbishop Kwashi, I believe is his name, who's who's a bishop in Nigeria in, in the, the area of Jos. Um, and it, it is remarkable what these Christians in Nigeria are living with, with uh, Boko Haram and the various sort of militant um, Islamic factions that are there. It's really something. Um, so do remember those folks in prayer. Well, this is our last Sunday in Kings, I think. Um, let me get my notes out. And my, my hope today is to kind of throw a lot at you, but you know how that goes. Um, so we're going to start... Probably, that's probably right. Um, but let's begin with prayer and then, we'll, and then we'll dive in. So Lord, thank you for your kindness in drawing us together today and already ministering to us in word and sacrament. Um, you have given us, Lord, these gifts um, to draw us back into your very life and to feed us on the mysteries of the gospel and to sustain us with the food of your very person, and to draw us, O Lord, into your very life. And I pray that you will give us courage as we enter into this week um, to walk into the truth of those realities. Help us today as we finish our time in Kings, and um, bless us as we enter into what is a kind of new academic year, and a new new fall in our church, a new calendar year in our church. Bless us, Lord, in in these seasons of transition, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on in. Um, so, a final week, and I, I debated a bit this morning about what to do. Um, and I, what, I, what I sort of landed on is I'd like to spend a little time with you all discussing some more about the prophets that appear in First Kings. Um, so we're not going to do very much in Second Kings at all today. We did a little bit last week, if you'll remember, as we move fo- forward um, toward the time of Josiah, um, Hezekiah, and then Manasseh, and then Josiah after him. Um, but I'm going to go back into First Kings today and talk a little bit about the importance of these prophetic figures that arise in this particular moment in Israel's history. And they do play a very important role. And it's interesting to see, I think, as you enter into Israel's history, the fact that God gives these prophets to his people as as a gift of his grace. Um, The prophets that we've encountered already, if you may remember, and there's no quiz on this, but the prophets you may remember are Ahijah, um, um, who shows up on the scene to let Jeroboam know that because of the sins of Solomon, God has decided to give you 11 tribes. I mean, it's a significant promise. Um, As you move toward the north and establish the northern kingdom, God is going to give you 11 tribes. And if you remember, that language of Deuteronomy appears in the prophecy from Ahijah in 1 Kings 11, where he says, and if you follow in the ways of the Lord. And if you remember, what's central to this? If you do this, there's life. But if you don't do this, then there's the path of death and exile that awaits you. All these gifts that God has given you, the gift of land, the gift of relationship, the gift of God's presence, all of these gifts that God has has given to you, they're gifts, never the possession of Israel. Never something that Israel had some sort of natural right to. 
Um, they were the gifts of God's good grace, and he and he let them know. But if you if you do not follow after me, um, and I think we need to be real clear about this because there, at least because of my own ways of thinking about the law, um, you know, I think there's a danger of thinking that what God is saying here is, I demand of you moral perfection. That's what I want from you is moral perfection. That's not what God is demanding. If you'll remember, the first commandment um, is the commandment by which all others are to be understood. And what is that commandment? Very basically, no other gods but me. I'm jealous for this relationship. Uh, by the way, I think that will... Come on in. Now, I think that will give some understanding, at least in part, to why you will read in the Psalms, for example, the psalmist claim his righteousness which makes us uncomfortable, right? Have you ever heard the psalmist say something like, Lord, you know I've been righteous in your sight. You think, who in the world says something like that? Um, I mean, I'm not going to stand up on Sunday morning and say, you know, Lord, you know I've been righteous because I've got, you know, people who live with me that can falsify it immediately. I'm not going to do that. Um, But that's not at the heart of what's going on. How could David be a man after God's own heart, right? And you follow David's life and it's like a... It's a Faulkner novel. I mean, things are just falling apart left and lo- left and right. Now, how could that be? Because central to Israel's covenantal relationship with her God is that very basic, and it's, to us it seems kind of so basic, but that very basic foundational conception that God chose Israel and in choosing Israel for himself in relationship, what he desired in return was the faith of loyalty to him. Exclusive loyalty to him and to him alone. And that was really the great challenge of Israel's whole history and the southern kingdom, Judah, as well, as we begin, as we begin to read um, in First and Second Kings. It was the struggle against the first commandment. It was the struggle against really the logic of the whole book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you choose me, there's life. If you don't choose me, then there's death that's awaiting. And so here you have Ahijah, and you have David telling it to Solomon as a prophet on his deathbed. If you follow my way, then this. You have Ahijah telling Jeroboam, if you follow my ways, then there will be life. And then we find right out of the gate, Jeroboam is setting up altars at Bethel and Dan, and there are calves in both places, and everything's gone off the, the, the rails already. Um, so this is the this is why this prophetic account of history is so important in the book of Kings. And God gives prophets to His people to remind them of that very simple covenantal claim. And, I mean, think about it when you and, and you will see it today. When you, when you encounter these prophets who are speaking to whether a king or to the people, um, you will have to search long and hard to find any sense of the prophet calling on them to pull themselves up by their moral bootstraps. It's, just, it's going to be very hard to find that. Uh, clean, clean your act up. Um, be more morally upright. And not that the prophets weren't concerned about that. But what's central to their role as a covenant emissary to the people of God? And they are, in the technical sense of that term, gadflies. That's what the prophets are. I mean, you can imagine that when Ahab looked up, and we'll get to this in a second, and he saw Elijah coming, Ahab was like, oh, crap. It's like, this is going to be a bad moment, right? You can imagine that. Because they, they played this role of the gadfly. They came in and they were just, they were pestering. 
But what was their pestering? Their pestering presence was a reminder about that claim that God had made on them. And, and when you step back and look at it from a kind of Goodyear blimp's perspective, you realize that that gadfly presence of the prophets was God's gift to His people. It's a gift for God not to leave us to ourselves. Um, and, and this and I, just stunned me yesterday. I was thinking about this. I was on my porch and, and working on this and had a baseball game on, but I was doing both. And... Um, <laughs> And I was thinking about this, uh, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really remarkable when you realize that in the northern kingdom of Israel, once Jeroboam goes off and then sets on a particular kind of trope, really, it's like Groundhog's Day. And this king walked in the ways of Jeroboam's father, and this king walked in the ways of Jeroboam's father. They, none, of, none of the kings of the northern kingdom followed after God and obeyed the first commandment. Not, not a one. And yet, throughout that whole time, up until their exile, when God's judgment finally fell in a totalizing way by the Neo-Assyrians, they always had a prophet in their midst. It's remarkable, isn't it? They had a Elijah, who then gave rise to an Elisha. And they had, think about this in the Minor Prophets, a Hosea. And they had an Amos. I mean, these were prophets in the northern kingdom where everything, culturally speaking, was leaning against any kind of traction they might have to get things moving in the right direction. I mean, it was, it was like a, a doomed, a doomed um, uh, call from the beginning, yet God gave them prophets. It, it was, it, it, you see what I'm saying? That very act itself is a gift of God's love to His people in the northern kingdom, even though from the very beginning they had said no to Him. They gave God the Heisman immediately in the establishment of the northern kingdom. And yet God says, I'm going to continue to give you my prophetic presence, which is an act of God's own kindness and grace to them. You realize this right. I mean, I, I don't process what it means to talk about God's wrath, um, which is a horrifying thought to think about the wrath of God. God pouring out his judgment of anger. Um, the, the Bible, the Old Testament, loves to use the expression "the heat of His wrath." You know, so you get this sense of heat. Um, an, an, another uh, phrase that the, that the Old Testament uses: the, the redness of God's nose. Um, uh, when, when it describes God being long-suffering, the way in which the Old Testament often describes that in Hebrew is His no, His nose doesn't turn red too fast. And that's interesting, right? I mean, I, I I've seen this. Um, I, I've, you know, I've got Middle Eastern blood in me, so my skin pigmentation doesn't change all that much. But I have some colleagues. I won't tell you who. Um, but I can tell in meetings when they're upset. Uh, I can tell because they can't have. There's this, this part on the back of their neck that starts to turn red, right? And I'm like, oh, they're they're not happy about this this moment right now. Um, and that and this, and the and the, what you see is this sort of long suffering character of God, and yet His wrath being poured out can be a horrifying prospect. But there's a flip side to this as well. I should, a flip side, really, the same coin, and that's the way in which Paul describes God's wrath in Romans chapter one. Um. How does God describe? How does Paul describe God's wrath there? God, God's wrath is the handing over of the people to their desires. In other words, God's wrath in Romans chapter one is the divesture of His own presence to them to let them have what they really want. If I could put it in First Kings language in the Northern Kingdom, God's wrath outpoured is when He doesn't send a prophet anymore. 
You know, so no more, no more prophets are going to come to you. I've now turned you over to what it is that you've, you've said for generations now is what you really, really want. And I'm going to give you your, your desires. Um, Naomi and I have been taught, we, we talk about our kids all the time and, and uh, we, we had one of these come to Jesus meetings with one of them recently. Um, and uh, we, some, something came to light and we pulled this son, I won't tell you who, but we pulled this son into our back room and we had a long conversation with him. And I can just see Naomi look in earnestness looking at this son and she said, I just want you to know I pray all the time that you get caught. <laughs> right. That you get caught. Um, why? Because getting caught is God's kindness. I mean, I know you don't feel it because it's going to hurt and we're going to make it hurt. Um, you know, you, we know that. But it's, it's an act of God's kindness that He doesn't just let you go. You know, like the, like the trout on the line. Just, just let him go. No, he's, he's pulling you in when He sends that prophet. And even when it's a hard word. And none of us like that. I mean, none of us like to hear a hard word. None of us like... As, as James says, to look into the mirror of God's Word and to see ourselves for who we truly are. None of us like that moment. It's not pleasant. It's the dentist chair of God's Word, right? No one wants to do it. But it's a kindness of God not to leave us to ourselves, I think. And that, and that just seized me last night, thinking about these prophets, especially in the, north, in the southern kingdom. It's like, I get it, right? In Judah, everything in Samuel, everything in Kings, everything when you move into Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, all of that is told from the standpoint of the central purposes of Judah for the sake of the eventual Messiah who would come. I get it with Judah. Isaiah, I get it. Micah, I get it. Um, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, all these southern prophets, I get that. But the northern kingdom? It's like, why, why them? And it's an, again, it's an act of God's grace in the midst of even our own rebellion against Him that He sends these hard words so that we're not left to ourselves. Um, and I wanted to look just with you this morning, and I'm conscious of our time, at a few of these prophets. Um, let's look first today. I want to get to Elijah. That's my goal. But I, but I could not skip what is possibly the hardest text in all of Kings um, because it's so wild. Um, 1 Kings 13. Can we talk about this for a second? 1 Kings 13. Um, and uh, for sake of time, do you mind if I just paraphrase the story? I'm going to paraphrase this. Um, so, first few verses, you can see it here. And this is a whole chapter is given to this really wild tale. Um, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah. So, those of you who've been with us now, you're starting to get a sense of the geography of what's going on here. Um, oh, I can't. That, I better not. Uh, I'll, I'll do this, right? So, here's... Um, Right, so that's the Middle East. Can you tell? <laughs> right? Can you tell that? I have a patent on this, so do not reproduce this without permission. That's the Mediterranean Sea, and you know, here so here you have the kingdoms that are divided, and Judah is really kind of this small bit down here, and then you have Israel all up in here. Um, that's not to scale. But uh, <laughs> as if you needed me to say that. Um, but God sends a prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah to the northern kingdom. Um, which he's wont to do. Um, we'll see, for example, the reverse of that in the book of Hosea and in the book of Amos. Prophets that were given to the northern kingdom 
are then received, their word is received as a word that has direct application to the southern kingdom of Judah as well. Um, so you have this kind of movement. Here's a, an unnamed prophet. Who is this prophet? We do not know. We do not know his name. But he's a man of God who's called from Judah to go up to Bethel. Remember, Bethel and Dan, those two places where you have these, these sanctuary, these shrines uh, built by Jeroboam for what? The worship of the two golden calves. So he goes up to there and Jeroboam, uh-oh, he was standing by the altar to burn incense. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. And this is remarkable, right? So you're talking here like 9th century B.C. He says, O altar, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. That did not go over well with Jeroboam. Remember, Jeroboam is not from the house of David. So this is, this is a politically hot moment. Right, so don't, 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 it's religiously charged, yes, but here's Jeroboam, the king, who's established the northern kingdom, and now you have this prophet from Judah publicly announcing that there's going to be a man from the Davidic line of the southern kingdom who's going to have oversight over all of this someday. Not a popular message, and he names him Josiah. This, I mean, this is now we're talking late seventh century. So a couple hundred years from now, there's going to be a young man named Josiah who's going to come onto the scene, and he shall sacrifice upon you the priests of the high place. He's going to kill your high high priests who are priests of of um, uh, false false priests who burn incense upon you, and men's bones shall be burned upon you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold of him. That's a very sort of King Jamesy way of saying, Get him. Right? Take care of that. Shut, shut his mouth down, is in effect what he's saying. And when he did that, his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. Uh, so what do you mean? Something He becomes paralytic in the moment. This is, again, movie night in heaven. This is going to be a good one. If we can see this, right? He's like, get that guy. And then all of a sudden he's like, I can't move my hand. It's, it's filled with, there's a comedy side to this as well. I can't move my hand back. Um, so what does the king said? Uh, verse 6, please entreat the favor of... Now notice this. This is again, these pronouns matter. Entreat now the favor of Tetragrammaton, the Lord, your God. Yeah, see, there's already this sense of distance. He's recognizing that we're obviously on the wrong sides of this issue here. And your God is the God who's in control because I can't move my hand. And he's also saying, and I'll have to come clean, I don't really acknowledge him as my God right now. Right? So entreat him, pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And so what does the man of God do? He entreats. And the king's hand was restored, and it became as it was before. This is out of Deuteronomy. How do you know a prophet is a prophet? When what he says comes true. Well, here it goes. So the, now we have the confirmation that this man is a true prophet. And here's where it gets awful. So the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. He, the king's doing what the king should do. He's showing hospitality in the face of this kindness that was given to him. Come with me and I'll, I'll just, I will pour out a banquet for you. And the man of God said to the king, now listen to this, if you were to give me half of your house, I will not go with you. 
I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. Why? Now listen to this. Because it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So you get this? The Lord gave this man of God from Judah a twofold prophetic injunction. Number one, you go up and you cry against the altar at Bethel and against Jeroboam and his, and his practices. You go do that. Number two, do that and get home. Don't do anything else. Don't eat, don't drink, do nothing else in the land of Israel. Do your prophetic ministry and then come right back to Judah. That was God's command to him. So he went another way and he did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So he's being shrewd here. He's like, I know, they know how I came. I'm going to be a little bit clandestine in the way in which I get home. And here's where it gets crazy. All right, now I'm, I'll paraphrase now. So there was an old prophet, another unnamed prophet who was there in the northern kingdom, who heard about what this young prophet had just done. And I guess, I don't know, it's some sort of fraternity of prophets or something, but the older prophet says, um, "Get my don- saddle up my donkey. I need to go see this man. And so he catches him on the road on his donkey, and he says to him, uh, please, I'm, I'm a prophet of the Lord, so are you. Um, come with me and, uh, and dine with me in my house tonight. In other words, he knows, and who, again, I don't want to read too much into the narrative, who knows what motivated the older prophet, but he knew that this young man's word was effective and powerful. And he wanted to be with him. Now, again, I think the motives were probably rather pure. Until this happens. The younger prophet says, I can't go with you. Because God commanded me not to eat, drink, or do anything but to go back to Judah. And this is what the older prophet said. Well, an angel came to me and told me something different. Remember, the angel told me that you need to come back with me and you need to eat and drink with me tonight. An angel of the Lord told me that. And so what does the younger prophet do? He says, okay. And he goes with him and he eats and he drinks. And then when the dinner party is over, the older prophet is seized by a word from the Lord. And he says, again, I'm paraphrasing, I've got bad news for you. The Lord just told me that you disobeyed His word. And on the way home to Judah, you're going to be killed. I mean, this is bad. This is bad. He was deceived. And so what happens? The younger prophet mounts on the road. He goes along the way. And the Bible says, And a lion met him there and killed him. Oh, this is horrible, right? Um, and so what happens? Well, the older prophet grieves. And he goes and he finds the body of this young man. Um, and the lion is standing by the body and has not consumed the, the prophet. And so he goes and he retrieves the body and he buries that young prophet in his own family grave. And it even becomes a pilgrimage site for Josiah 200 years later. So this prophet, I mean, this story has a long life in the religious memory of Israel and Judah. And that's why I think we get a whole chapter given to it here. It's horrible. I mean, this is one of those scenes where, and by the way, the history of interpretation of 1 Kings 13 is its own fascinating kind of read. I mean, what do you do with all of this? Well, I, I don't know what to do with all of it, to be honest with you, but can I just give you a few thoughts, perhaps, on what the significance of this, of this chapter is. Number one, we know from the way in which the Bible tends to operate with prophets that not only do prophets um, speak the word of the Lord, they often embody the word of the Lord in their actions, in what they do. Um, you know, Ezekiel, your wife just died. Do not mourn her. 
right? Um, Jeroboam, go bury your fancy silk underwear. That's the Genlet paraphrase. Um, your brand new underwear that you got, go bury it and then um, go find it 13 days later because I want to teach the people a lesson through your underwear. Um, Hosea, this is, I think, one of the more poignant ones in the Bible. Go marry a woman who either is a prostitute or on her way to some bad stuff um, because I want, this to, I want you to embody in your very life what it is I'm trying to say. And I do think there's an aspect of what's going on here that um, the prophet, this unnamed prophet, is embodying something as a word to Jeroboam. And what's the word to Jeroboam? The word is Jeroboam. When he first heard from the prophet, listen to the prophetic word. Because his hand had withered. And he had a kind of a moment there of repentance. But the second time, it didn't go that way. Which eventually in time led to Jeroboam's judgment and the judgment on the nation. Um, this is what happened, I think, with the pro- this young prophet. The first time when the king invited him into his house, he said no to that. But the second time when the prophet invited him into his house, he acquiesced in the face of that pressure, and he then went and he, and he did it. So I do think that you have something about the prophet here embodying something to Jeroboam about the long-term necessity of obedience to the, to the word of the Lord. Another thing, I think we see here the danger of lying prophets. Um, and this is this is a hard one, I think, because um, uh, think about, for example, the the showdown that you have in the book of Jeremiah between Jeremiah and Hananiah. Hananiah is a false prophet. You know how we know Hananiah is a false prophet because he made a prophecy, and I love the. I mean, it's just so simple how the Bible says it. And he died that day. <laughs> okay, so that he, he's a false prophet. But you know what Hananiah is doing? Hananiah is, um, the, the message that he's giving is one of peace, of Zion's indestructibility. The gates of hell cannot prevail against Zion. Have you read Psalm 46? In other words, Hananiah had a little bit of the Bible on his side um, and was using it. And Jeremiah is coming in with other parts of the Bible to say, hey, by the way, you can't just use one part, cherry pick that, and not submit yourself to the total witness of Scripture if I'm using our sort of modern language. Um, and here's the danger, right? The danger about lying prophets. Karl Barth has a, I mean, Karl Barth's one of the best readers of 1 Kings 13, just going to tell you. And Barth said, there's nothing worse than a professional prophet. Nothing worse than a professional theologian. You know, someone who's so sort of crafty about their trade that they are just, they're slippery and a little slimy. And that's what you have here from this older prophet. He knows he knows how to get what he wants by manipulating the Word of God to his own end. Um, and it's very easy, I think, to sit on the sideline and to kind of bark at that out there on the court while other people are doing it and not take into account that all of us have that tendency within us, I think. That when we are, to use the language of the Reformation, preaching the Scriptures to ourselves... That we all, I think, have a tendency to go to those places that comfort us and not always those places that challenge us. Or, depending on how you're hardwired, those places that challenge us and not those places that comfort us. I mean, this is a, I mean, the, the way in which the Bible is engaged. You know, I tell my students this at, at, at uh, Beeson all the time. I said, you know, we're all working with some kind of interpretive system. I, I'm an, I mean, I'm a Reformation Anglican who thinks in Catholic ways. I mean, I'm, I'm hardwired that way. Um, I'm a 39 articles kind of guy. I think liturgically. I think the location of our, of our ecclesial space shapes the way in which I read the Bible. And I think all of that is important. 
But I have to recognize, and this is where I think Reformation instincts come into play, I have to recognize at the end of the day, though, all of that is in service at the foot of God's Word, not vice versa. And God's Word is not in service of my ecclesial comfortable space. And that has to create room for the Word of God to do its comforting and judging work in our lives. And whenever we have an interpretive approach that allows us to mute certain parts of the Bible because we have this part over here, that is, to me, one of the great legacies of Reformation thought. Not just sola scriptura, the Scripture alone is the sole authority in the life of the church, but toda scriptura, all of it. Um, there's, a, there's the necessity of engaging the Bible, what the early church fathers would call the dianoia of Scripture, the mind of the Bible from beginning to end. So that if we can use the words of Charles Spurgeon, that when we get cut, we, we bleed bibline, right? Because we're thinking in ways in which the Bible in its totality, uh, and, 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 I sh- and, and don't hear that as me saying, and this is real easy. Um, because you know the, the Bible doesn't come to us as a kind of compendium th- of thought on anything. Nothing. You know, I mean, this this is the part of the hard challenge, isn't it? Right. Where, where, what pages is it? Page four seventy five to eight twenty two that you want to read about how to be a good parent in the Bible, and then you know go to the index and say, now I want to read about the Trinity. Well, you get that on pages ten to fifteen. I mean, the the Bible doesn't come to us as a kind of compendium of thought. And by the way, I value Christian theology that gives us a compendium of Christian thought. And don't downplay that at all. But I'm just saying that the Bible doesn't come to us that way. It demands patience and humility in the face of the Scriptures to say, I want to yield myself to what you're claiming here. And that, by the way, is the demand of the faithful in every generation of the church's existence. There's not a moment in the time where the church can say, the previous generation took care of that for us. They did that. And now we're always demanded to be involved in that, in that kind of activity. And so we see here, what do you have with this lying prophet? It was the fact that he took the word of the Lord and manipulated it toward its own selfish end, and it cost that prophet his life. Um, in other words, the stakes are high with this kind of thing. Um, and and this, is, this is, again, I think the, the, the challenge. All right. Um, well, forget Elijah. See, <laughs> see. Here, here's another thing, that, and this, this sort of hit me as well in this 1 Kings 13. Um, past, past ministerial success, um, past, for lack of a better term, Christian success. In other words, like I can remember, some of you may feel, I can remember back in my 20s when I was sold out for Jesus, something like that, um, is no guarantee of a future plan. I mean, this prophet here who had a moment... I mean, think about the courage uh, it would have taken for a young man from Judah to face off against Jeroboam. I mean, this was a man whose power at that moment in time knew no end in the region. And when he heard Jeroboam... And what did Jeroboam want? I mean, and Jeroboam was ready to exercise it. I mean, the strong arm of Jeroboam's royal might was about to be extended against that prophet, but his hand stopped, right? Um, It took an enormous amount of courage. And yet here we have him in this moment with this lying prophet not discerning what's going on. And again, there's a lot of mess here, um, but now there's there's a moment of of failure. I was was, um, 
I keep near me um, because I just think they're so good. Uh, these essays by Montagnier, who's a kind of, he's really the father of um, the genre of essay writing, which is basically you just take a thought and run with it. It's the kind of thing that I think so many of us, when you took English, you know, back, grammar back in the day or creative writing or some, did a research paper, if you wrote an essay style, your teacher hated it. Right, because they want you to give what a thesis, and and here's and here's here's the three things that I'm going to argue as I move into the body of my paper. It's just all very boring, but that, that's what they want, or they want that. What's an essay? An essay is here's an idea, and I'm just going to chase it wherever it goes. Um, and Montagnier was the greatest of of essayists, and, and who really sort of started the genre. So I keep his essays kind of in my room, and and uh, I mean to, to be it, anyway. Um, <laughs> And, and he's got a great essay in there on the inconstancy of our human nature. And he raises, and he's very versed in the classic authors and the classic tradition. And here's Montagnier, and he's saying, you know, why is it that you'll find a man who on one day shows such courage in battle? And he gives all these examples from Greco-Roman history. Such courage in battle. And yet two weeks later, is completely paralyzed by fear. How could that be the same person? Right? Um, and he goes into this to say that there's an inconstancy about our, our character and our nature. And by the way, Montagnier goes on to say that the person who's constant in nature has to have a clarity about his or her driving purpose and existence in life. Because what motivates us to be courageous in one moment might not motivate us in the next moment. So here I think we see something in this prophet that past success is not necessarily a guarantee of future success. God calls us to be mindful and watchful, recognizing that our Christian existence, and I've had to really think about this a lot, um, and I'm just trying to get my head around it, our Christian existence is always a dynamic present. We're living in movement, yes, but it's always a sort of dynamic present of living life before God now. And the temptation to not live into that dynamic because of, oh, I remember when it was so good back then, or it might get better later. There's a call to the sort of dynamism of the moment in our life lived before God. And I think the prophet says something about that. Last thing. And then, and this, this will be it. I'm sorry about Elijah. And I had some really, really good stuff on that too. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, last thing. Um, it's kind of remarkable here, but the prophet ends up suffering the judgment of his own word. That, that to me, I think is the part that is, almost paralyzes me with this text. He's the one that told Jeroboam the first time, the Lord has said, I cannot do this. And then when that lion attacks him on the road, he suffers under the judgment and the fulfillment of his own prophetic word. There's something harrowing about that. And it's a pattern, by the way, that we see throughout the prophets. Where's Jeremiah when Nebuchadnezzar is tearing down those walls and bringing absolute hell into the city of Jerusalem? Where's Jeremiah? Who told them this was going to happen? Who warned them that, that Nebuchadnezzar is the, is the means of God's judgment against them for their infidelity? Where's Jeremiah? Right in the middle of the city. Living into the judgment that he himself brought by his own word through um, his prophetic activity. We see Micah in Micah chapter 1 suffering under his own prophetic word. And you know what we find in the Gospels? This is what I love when we come into the New Testament and we find Jesus entering into his role and entering into it with aplomb, the role of prophet, priest, and king. When Jesus is, comes into the scene as prophet, 
And, and you can't get away from that, right? Well, what's Jesus' first sermon? It's not, I'm here to hold you and hold your hand and love you. I mean, he's going to say that, but that's not his first word. You know what his first word is? Repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. That's, you know, that's Elijah language. And he's bringing this word of judgment. And before we know it, by the time we get to the end of all the Gospels, Jesus himself is suffering the judgment of his own word. His own prophetic word, Jesus absorbs all of that onto himself. There's a kind of swelling tide that you feel in the prophets, in the prophetic literature, where these prophets who enter into the suffering of their own moment begin to swell in such a way that they are anticipating for us. They're giving us these lightning flashes of what in time Jesus would do for Israel and the whole world. He would bring, he is the prophetic word of God. He would bring the prophetic word of God against and for his people, and then he would absorb all of it onto himself. Jeremiah couldn't do that in totality to the forgiveness of sins. Um, Elijah couldn't do that to the forgiveness of sins. They intimate something that in time would bud into a full flower that kind of blows us away of what God has done, the length that God would go to overcome the history of his own people that we find in the book of Kings. And what is that history? It's a history of, of failure with regard to our ability to love him with all of our heart, our mind, and our soul. We can't do it. And so what does he do? He enters into existence for us. And he loves for us, he lives for us, and he suffers our judgment for us. So Lord, thank you for the book of Kings. It's a rich and profound um, brings us, Lord, into the very mystery of your engagement with humanity and time. And I pray, Lord, that you'll let us find great joy and hope that you've not left us to ourselves, but that you've given us your word and to draw us, Lord, to even those hard places to be honest about who we are and to be thankful for who you are for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.